Hopi, would you go to my office? I don't know how I did that, but I, for, I left my glasses in my office. If you could go real quick and see what you can find. <laughs> if they're not there, I have no idea where they are. So, uh, assuming everyone has a note sheet, we're going to try to uh, get started here. I can't see real well, but um, <laughs> I'll do what I can, okay? On January 22nd, 1973, that was quick. How did you? Bill Roney, okay. These, are, these aren't mine. These aren't my glasses. No, ma'am. I guess just people pick up things and give them to me. I don't know. Just <laughs> have no idea whose glasses those are. They switched them on you. Oh, they did. Let me see if I can. Actually, it's not bad. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I might just stay with these. Is this it? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, as you get older, uh, you forget things. And if you're not there, you will be. <laughs> On January 22nd, 1973, exactly one half century ago today, in the legal case of Jane Roe versus Henry Wade, the United States Supreme Court justices voted seven to two to actually legalize abortion. And that ruling continued until June 24th, 2022, just this past summer, when a different Supreme Court ruled to overturn Roe v. Wade and sent the abortion question to the states. Individual states now determine the legality of abortion. That meant Roe was a law for a total of 18,050 days. And as a nation, during Roe, we legally aborted 63,459,781 babies. It is impossible to know the potential of those unwanted children. One of them could have discovered the cure to cancer or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or some other serious disease. One of them could have become president but all that human potential is now non-existent. In 1992, President Clinton said he wanted abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. Now, there are people in his same political party that want abortion to be safe, legal, and celebrated. There is a social media campaign called Shout Your Abortion that uses a website Facebook page and other social media platforms to share women's abortion experiences without, quote, sadness, shame, or regret. That campaign was started in 2015, and tens of thousands of women have used that medium to celebrate their abortion. There's a Shout Your Abortion online store that sells such blasphemous t-shirts as Thank God for abortion. The current presidential administration has started to permit expensive abortion drugs to be sold through the mail without direct medical contact so that women can abort babies at home and a doctor doesn't need to oversee the process. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration is also permitting stores such as Walgreens, CVS, and Rite Aid to sell the abortion pill in their pharmacies. The progressive left tells us that the core of this abortion debate is about women's reproductive rights. It's about women's health and a woman's right to choose. No, it's not. At the core of this pro-abortion movement is a fundamental misunderstanding. And that misunderstanding is that the death of the unborn it's not an actual death because the unborn is just a potential person and not an actual person. The co-founder of Shout Your Abortion, 
is Lindy West. And she said, quote, there are no good abortions and no bad abortions because an abortion is just a medical procedure and a fetus is not a person. Abortionists argue that human life doesn't begin until birth or until after birth, and so aborting a fetus is just another personal choice that has no moral consequence. Dr. James Watson was the co-discoverer of the DNA molecule, and he argued babies are non-persons until three days after birth. I cannot imagine a more illogical, unscientific, and unbiblical statement. The question that must be answered is this. At what precise moment does actual individualized human life begin? When does personhood start? When does someone actually become someone? It is the consensus of conservative evangelicalism, conservative Protestantism, and traditional Catholicism that human life begins at conception. St. Gauls and us are in agreement on this subject. Life begins at conception. One example is this positional statement from the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. It reads, procreation is a gift from God, a precious trust reserved for marriage. At the moment of conception, a new life, a new being enters the universe, a human being, a being created in God's image. This human being deserves our protection, whatever the circumstances of conception. That last line, this human being deserves our protection, whatever the circumstances of conception, I'm guessing that could mean incest and or rape. That statement gives us our basic defense in the argument against abortion. Because if actual human life begins at conception or soon after conception, then to abort that unborn child constitutes an unjustifiable homicidal act. If human life begins inside the, the woman, then abortion is a conscious murderous act. As someone said, abortion is the ultimate child abuse. Abortion is the reason there, this is such an essential question. Is the embryo a lump or an actual life? Is the fetus a blob of tissue or a child? Let me mention some basic biological words that might help us better understand the subject. First, there's conception. Conception is the actual uniting of the male sperm and the female egg or ovum. Conception occurs the exact moment the male sperm cell meets and unites with the female egg. That biological transaction is also called fertilization. A new and separate being is created at that moment of conception. That being is totally different from its mother and its father. It has 23 chromosomes from each parent, making a total of 46 chromosomes. According to medical science, once the sperm and ovum unite in conception, they become a complete genetic package programmed for continuation into a fully mature adult. That is conception. The second word is embryo. An embryo is an unborn child from the moment of conception through the first trimester. The first trimester describes the first three months of a mother's pregnancy. A child during those first three months inside the mother is considered an embryo. And 90% of abortions occur during this first trimester because that is considered the safest time for the mother to have an abortion. The third word is fetus. A fetus is an unborn child from through the second and third trimesters. A fetus is an unborn child from the beginning of the second trimester throughout the third trimester, meaning throughout the remainder of the mother's pregnancy. One more time, an embryo 
is an unborn child during the first three months of the gestation period, and that child is considered a fetus during the remaining six months of that gestation period. I would argue that actual human life begins at conception, meaning that an embryo is an actual human life, and a fetus is actual human life. A woman becomes a biological mother at conception, even if she doesn't give birth to that child because she has had an unfortunate miscarriage or because she has had an abortion. In a technical sense, because she has conceived, she is a biological mother. Motherhood starts at conception, and fatherhood also starts at conception. I'm sure more than one pregnant teenager considering an abortion has come to life choices and has said, but I, I'm not prepared to be a mom. She doesn't understand that she's already a mom. She became a mother at the moment she conceived a child. Notice five biblical statements that support this contention that human life begins at conception. Statement one, the Bible does not make a distinction between an unborn child and a child after birth. The Bible doesn't make a distinction between an unborn child and a child after birth. It is apparent from Scripture that a child is a child is a child is a child. Inside the mother or outside the mother, it doesn't matter. Luke 1, Jesus' mother, Mary, had a cousin named Elizabeth. Elizabeth was pregnant. She was scheduled to give birth to a son named John. John would be called John the Baptist, meaning John the Baptizer because baptizing was his thing. John would ultimately present Jesus to the nation of Israel. Essentially, John did public relations for Jesus. Elizabeth was six months pregnant, and that meant John was entering his third trimester as a fetus, still unborn. Mary had come to see Elizabeth after she had been given the message from the angel. She would be having the messianic child Jesus, Yeshua, so Mary went to share that exciting announcement with Elizabeth. Luke 1, verse 39, Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, notice, that the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 42, then she, this is Elizabeth, spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Verse 43, but why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Verse 44, for indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Notice the word babe is mentioned in verses 41 and 44. This word babe is translated from the Greek word brafos. Brafos. That ancient word, brafos, was used in this text to describe John as a fetus in his prenatal state inside his mother because he hadn't been born at this time. So don't forget that word brafos. Now, I want us to notice Acts 7. This section from Acts 7 contains the sermon Stephen preached that got him stoned. Stephen had been a deacon from the first church established at Jerusalem, and he was the first martyr of the church. Much of this sermon Stephen preached was a lesson in Jewish history demonstrating to Stephen's Jewish audience how their ancient ancestors had resisted the prophets God had sent them. This particular verse is a reference to Joseph, 
Some of us remember Joseph. It is said that after Joseph died, that another Pharaoh came to rule and reign in Egypt that didn't know Joseph. And so he was not a friend to the Jewish people that had earlier migrated in mass to Egypt. Notice verse 19. This man, meaning this newer Pharaoh, dealt treacherously treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. Remember, the Hebrews were enslaved in Egypt. Um, There had been among them, though, a serious baby boom. And that sudden surge in the Hebrew population created what was perceived to be a threat to Pharaoh because he was afraid that this exploding Jewish population could cause an insurrection. And so he was frightened for his throne. Pharaoh wanted to curb the Hebrew population and reduce it to zero growth. So he commanded all newborn male babies that were born to Jewish mothers, he commanded that those babies be confiscated from their mothers and drowned. Stephen was commenting on that same incident in Acts chapter 7. Notice that Stephen used the word babies in verse 19. And that word was a reference to those infant boys that had been born to Jewish mothers and then taken and drowned. Babies is translated from that same Greek word brothos. Brothos. So putting these passages together, notice in Luke 1, an unborn child, John, in the third trimester position inside his mother is called brothos. And then Acts 7 mentions the Jewish slaves in Egypt and use the exact same word brothos to refer to Jewish babies that have been born, taken from their mothers, and then drowned. Then consider that the same person authored both of these books. The original author of all Scripture is God Himself, but the human author of both books was Luke. Luke authored both the Gospel of Luke and then a sequel called Acts. And Luke was completely aware of the fact he used the same Greek word, brothos, to describe a child in the prenatal position and then describe a child in the postnatal position. If there was a difference between a child inside the mother and a child outside the mother, then Luke would have used different language in order to make that distinction. But he didn't do that. I might add a piece of trivia. Remember, Luke was a medical doctor. So he would have understood if there was a fundamental difference between a child inside his mother and then a child outside his mother. But there wasn't a difference because the Bible never distinguishes between a child in the prenatal state and a child in the postnatal state. Both Hebrew and Greek cultures considered a child to be a child to be a child. It didn't matter, born or unborn. Dr. William Lynch a Boston gynecologist said, quote, if medical scientists are claiming to create human life inside of a test tube, then we can't call it something else inside the womb. Think about that statement. There have been hundreds of thousands of test tube babies. Medical professionals claim to create human life in a laboratory dish And then doctors insert that human life into the mother through the means of artificial insemination. And then the mother, after nine months of gestation, gives birth to that human life. The premise is this. It can't be called life in a laboratory. And then once it's inserted inside the mother, it's then considered non-life. And then after nine months, one more time, it's called life. That's illogical. If it is life outside the womb, then it was life inside the womb. Statement two. To argue that someone does not become a person until birth is to say that God forms non-persons inside the womb. 
To argue that someone does not become a person until birth is to say that God forms non-persons inside the mother's womb. Psalm 139 is an often used passage in addressing this subject. The Bible is not a book on embryology, but it does make some specific statements about unborn human life. It does contain some explicit statements that God forms actual persons inside a mother. This passage contains some of those statements. Notice Psalm 139, and this is from the New Living Translation. I like their rendering there. Verse 13, you, and this is God, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Verse 14, thank you for making me so wonderfully complex that our bodies are complex is almost an understatement. Ever see an anatomy chart in the doctor's office? Our bodies are super complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. Verse 15, you watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. Verse 16, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life, was recorded in your books. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Not long ago, a newspaper from the UK ran an article about what that publication considered the greatest photograph of the 20th century. Of all of the photographs published in magazines, newspapers, and periodicals, of all the photographs published during that entire century, that newspaper selected a photo from a 1965 edition of Life magazine. This is that photo. This is an 18-week-old fetus in its amniotic sac with its umbilical cord winding off to the placenta. And that picture from a brilliant Swedish photojournalist named Leinhardt Nielsen is an incredible illustration of the text we just read from Psalm 139. Forty times Scripture refers to conception as the genesis or beginning of life inside a mother. From a biblical perspective, it is unquestionable that God forms an actual person inside the mother. French genesist uh, Dr. Jerome Lejeune. Uh, it's interesting, there's a marine base in North Carolina. People often refer to it as Camp Lejeune. That is a mispronunciation. The correct pronunciation is Lejeune. Is as if there's an R in that word, although there's not. And Dr. Jerome Lejeune, discoverer of Down syndrome, made this statement. If a fertilized egg is not by itself a full human being, then it could not become one because something would have to be added to it. And we know that does not happen. This is not an opinion. It is a fact. I remember seeing a feminist poster in a Newsweek magazine. The poster read, a woman's body is a woman's business. And then there was the slogan, keep your laws off my body. The problem is the creator of those slogans didn't understand that it's not just the body of the mother that's in question. It's the body of the child, the unborn child. And that child is a separate entity from the mother. I understand that the nourishment comes from the mother and its survival is contingent on the mother throughout the gestation period, but that embryo or fetus is a separate human being. To counter this pro-abortion argument that it's just the mother's body, then answer this question. Can one body have two different blood types? Can one body have two different blood types? The answer is no, that's not possible. Can one body be both female and male in the case of a woman giving birth to a son? The answer is no. 
There are two distinct bodies involved in a pregnancy. Unless there's twins, then there's three bodies. Unless there's triplets, then there's four bodies. It gets out of hand after that. The fetus is just, it's not just an appendage of the mother. Genetically, mother and child are separate individuals from conception. Evil legal, legal precedent contends that personhood begins at conception. Sometimes courts award unborn children certain inheritance rights. In a technical legal sense, an unborn child can actually be named an executor. He can have a guardian appointed to him. He can sue for injury. He can file for an injunction. He can receive Social Security benefits and even obtain equal protection according to the law, except for the right to save its own life. Statement three. In the Old Testament, if a man injured a pregnant woman to the extent that her unborn child died, then the principle of one life for one life would be put into effect. This is found in Exodus 21, verse 22. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, meaning although there's a premature birth, this premature child isn't harmed or injured, then he, the one that caused this, shall surely be punished according as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. This is citing a hypothetical example. Two men were fighting. It seems that this woman uh, was caught up in the middle of this fight. Um, she's collateral damage. One of the men unintentionally injured her, but notice she was injured to the extent She's pregnant, injured to the extent she gave birth prematurely. If this premature birth did not cause any serious complications or cause serious injury, permanent injury to the child, then the person that injured her only had to pay some fines or expenses that were incurred as the result of her giving birth prematurely. The husband of this injured woman could ask the judge for money to compensate this man and his wife that had just been injured, and the judge would determine what the perpetrator would pay. Notice verse 23, but, but, if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life. If the pregnant woman that was injured in this fight gave birth to the child prematurely, and that child died as a result of that premature birth, then the man that injured this woman was required to give his life for the life of that child. Now understand what was being said. Thank you. Understand what was being said. The point is that this man that had caused this fatal injury would not have been required to give his life for the life of the unborn child if that child wasn't considered still unborn a human life. God would not have imposed, under the economy of Israel, would not have imposed the principle of one life for one life unless the life that was taken in death had constituted an actual human life. This text prescribed the same death penalty capital punishment for someone that had caused the death of a small child still inside the mother as it did for someone that caused an adult's death. I read an account from Los Angeles describing a man that had shot a pregnant woman. She died from those gunshot wounds and so did her unborn fetus. That perpetrator was arrested, tried, and then convicted on two counts of murder. That man went to prison for the murder of both the woman and the unborn child. That court, that jury, that judge substantiated the position that life begins inside the mother because it's not possible to murder a non-life. Statement four, the universal 
reproduction law states that each thing is to reproduce after itself. Each thing is to reproduce after itself. Um, this is part of the creation sequence from Genesis 1. Notice verse 11. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit. Now notice this phrase, according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. Verse 12. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed. Notice this phrase according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself. Notice this, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. This phrase, according to its kind, is repeated ten different times in Genesis 1 uh, that records the creation account. That is called the law of biogenesis. The famous scientist Louis Pasteur discovered the principles of vaccination. Um, he also discovered past, uh, pasteurization, named after himself. Um, he also discovered the law of biogenesis. And that law, he learned, teaches that life comes from life. Life cannot come from non-life. And in particular, this law teaches that each thing reproduces after itself. That's one reason secular evolutionary theories are problematic. I can accept microevolution. Microevolution means evolutionary changes inside a species. I cannot except macroevolution. Macroevolution means changes from one species to another different species. This is the reason dogs reproduce themselves in dogs, not cats. This is the reason monkeys reproduce themselves in monkeys, not human beings. Some of my ancestors might have hung from their necks, but none of them ever hung from their tails. Humans reproduce after themselves, and this means human life reproduces additional human life. From a pure biological perspective, personhood begins at conception because that's all, as humans, we are able to reproduce. Personhood cannot reproduce non-personhood because the law of biogenesis doesn't permit that. In 1921, a familiar name, Margaret Sanger founded an organization that evolved into what we now understand as Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood is essentially an abortion mill. In a recent 12-month period, Planned Parenthood recorded 383,460 abortions. Planned Parenthood performs 41% of all abortions in the U.S. And on an annual basis, Planned Parenthood receives more than one-half billion dollars from our taxes. Our monies support Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood wants us to believe that its primary function is to provide women prenatal services. Uh, that's their mantra. According to them, this is the reason they exist. That is not true. The truth is Planned Parenthood performs 43 abortions for every one prenatal client. Margaret Sanger was a social reformer, sex educator, and nurse. She started the first birth control clinic in 1916, and she has, according to feminists, long been considered an icon for women's reproductive rights. The fact is, she was an irreligious, secularist, racist, and eugenicist. Eugenics is pure evil. Eugenics is the idea of, quote, improving the human population through selective breeding and sterilization and even euthanasia. The Nazis practice eugenics. In addition, Margaret Sanger blamed Christianity for suppressing sexual discussion. 
But in researching Ms. Sanger, I found something interesting that Planned Parenthood advocates probably aren't aware of. And that is Margaret Sanger promoted conception. Yes, she was all about con uh, contraception. Contraception, but not abortion. It was not until the late 60s, after Sanger's death, that the reproductive rights movement expanded to include abortion rights. Sanger, I know this seems difficult to believe, Sanger was actually opposed to abortion. One, because at that time abortion was especially dangerous to the mother, and second, because she believed human life shouldn't be terminated after conception. In Sanger's 1938 autobiography, she stated that she opposed abortion because it constituted taking human life. In 1916, she made this statement, quote, We explained what contraception was, that abortion was wrong. No matter how early that abortion was performed, it was still taking life. Contraception was better and safer. Contraception took some time, and trouble, but it was the best option in the long run because life had not begun. In her book, Woman and the New Race, she wrote, quote, I assert that the hundreds of thousands of abortions performed in this nation each year are a disgrace to civilization. It's ironic to me the founder of this nation's largest abortion provider was actually opposed to abortion herself. Because even being the racist and godless person she was, she was convinced human life begins at conception. She might be the ultimate example of the adage, even a broken clock is right twice a day. Listen to this. A pamphlet was published in 1951. That pamphlet was entitled The Gift of Life. It contained some traditional instruction about human sexuality and the sanctity of life. For instance, the first page read, quote, The gift of life is shown to us with the birth of each new baby. Then on pages 21 and 22, the authors informed readers, quote, If one of the new male sperm meets and unites with an egg cell, a new life begins. Essentially stating that life begins conception. The cover on this pamphlet had a picture of a happy family, a mother and father and three children, all of them apparently leaving church. And who published that plan pamphlet in 1951? Planned Parenthood. That's the extent of the deterioration our culture has experienced, even in my lifetime. Statement number five. Conception is the generating agent for the sin nature. The generating agent for the sin nature. Psalm 51, verse 5. David's confession, David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now don't misunderstand. This phrase, in sin my mother conceived me, doesn't mean David was born an illegitimate child. No, instead theologians believe this phrase is a reference to the sin nature. The sin nature is this internal, invisible susceptibility humans have toward committing sin. And we have all inherited this sin nature from the first man, Adam. This sin nature is sometimes called the flesh, the Adamic nature, and the old man. The result of this sin nature, which each of us have inherited, is practical sins we commit. This sin nature is the reason it isn't necessary to teach a small child to be selfish. It isn't necessary to teach a small child to take something that isn't his. The reason is because it's his nature to do that. The terrible twos are just some of the beginning manifestation of this inherited sin nature. The point is that this sin nature we receive at conception is passed on to persons, 
not non-persons. That means if David inherited this sin nature at conception, as he said he did, then he was a person starting at conception. Because this sin nature only applies to people in actual human life. This sin nature cannot be passed on to a non-person. So if we inherit this sin nature at conception, that means we are then persons starting at conception. And that should be the end of discussion. To be fair, let me present a, uh, a rebuttal to this message. A Democrat U.S. representative named Hillary Skolton, and I'm apologize if I've mispronounced that name, Hillary Skolton, calls herself a pro-choice Christian. And I'm finding more and more people doing this. Pastor Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, where Dr. King pastored as um, a senator, Raphael Warnock, he considers himself to be a pro-life, pro-choice, pardon me, pro-choice pastor. So more and more people are considering this option. And uh, this congresswoman attended a Christian high school, graduated from a Christian college, and is a member of an evangelical Christian denomination. So she should know better, but she doesn't. And to add even more insult to that claim of being a pro-choice Christian, this congresswoman from Michigan cites Jeremiah 1, verse 5, as biblical support for the pro-choice position. This is one of the most outrageous examples of twisting Scripture I have ever, ever seen. Jeremiah 1, verse 5. God said this to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is an adult at this time, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. Sanctified meaning to set someone apart. Jeremiah was set apart. God set him apart. And there's, here's the reason. And I ordained you a prophet to the nations. It seems Jeremiah the prophet had a prenatal ordination service inside his mother. Even as an unborn child, during the gestation period, God sanctified him, consecrated him, and commissioned him to become a prophet. That happened in his still unborn state. This verse could actually be used to support the pro-life position, but this confused congresswoman distorted it to represent the pro-choice position. Now, don't miss this logic from this woman. She argues that since the statement, before I formed you in the womb, was a reference to Jeremiah's mother's womb, and what else could it be? Since the statement, before I formed you in the womb, was a reference to Jeremiah's mother's womb, and not the government's womb. I didn't know government had a universe. Didn't know government gave birth. Since it's not a reference to the government's womb, the inference is then the government or the state shouldn't regulate abortion. People, that's nuts. That's called eisegesis. I've used two hermeneutical words before. I've mentioned them often, exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis is the practice of pulling the meaning and interpretation of a biblical text out of the text itself. Exegesis is what we attempt to do in each sermon I preach. Eisegesis is the opposite. Eisegesis is the practice of inserting someone's own bias and meaning and interpretation into the biblical text. This congresswoman is guilty of eisegesis. This idea of government is nowhere in this text. Read the preceding verses. Read in the verses after this verse. Government isn't there. This congresswoman inserted that bias, that idea of government into the text. It shouldn't be there. The point of this text is that God's relational connection to Jeremiah was the same in his unborn state 
as it was once he became an adult. There was continuity between prenatal Jeremiah and postnatal Jeremiah. So God's relational connection to Jeremiah as an unborn prophet is evidence that unborn children possess full personhood. Listen to me. Claiming to be a pro-choice Christian is a complete oxymoron. Someone can be pro-choice, and someone can profess to be a Christian. But no one, in a biblical sense, can be a pro-choice Christian. That person doesn't exist. Question. How would you advise this mother who was pregnant with her fifth child... Her husband had syphilis, and she had tuberculosis. Their first child was born blind. Their second child died soon after birth. Their third child was born deaf. Their fourth child had tuberculosis, and this is her fifth child. This mother is considering an abortion because of the threat, based on previous track record, uh, of a serious birth defect and or disease, What would you advise this mother to do? Most secular, unregenerate, unsaved, non-biblical thinking people would agree that she should have an abortion. But in this case, to abort that child means that we would have killed the great composer Ludwig von Beethoven. Question, how would you advise this pregnant mother? She and her husband were Southern Baptist missionaries in the Philippines. She had contracted abiac or ambiac dysentery, probably from contaminated drinking water. She actually fell into a coma and received strong drugs to combat the infection. Then she, during this time, discovered she was pregnant And this was also her fifth child. The drug she had been taking had caused the placenta to detach detach from the uterine wall. And that deprived the fetus of oxygen. Once the doctors understood that she was pregnant, the drugs were stopped. But those physicians concluded that the high doses of medicine had already probably damaged the fetus. The doctors were convinced the mother was in serious danger and the fetus wouldn't survive. And if it did manage to survive, there would be serious complications and problems. The doctor said to this mother in a slow, monotone announcement that an abortion was the only solution to save her life. He said that this product of conception had to be extracted. But she felt different. For some reason, she felt this is not something she should do. She refused that abortion and remained hospitalized the last two months of her pregnancy. Probably, most people would have argued against that mother's decision not to abort, But God bless that commitment to trust Him. And on August the 14th, 1987, she gave birth to a son she named Timmy. Timmy Tebow. He won the Heisman Trophy in 2007 and became one of the greatest collegiate athletes ever. He's currently an ESPN college football analyst. And just days ago, he was a recent first ballot inductee into the College Football Hall of Fame. It's interesting that after Tim's birth, the doctor that delivered him said only a small part of the placentia was still attached to the uterine wall, but it was just enough to keep the fetus nourished throughout the pregnancy. God did that. Someone in this room might have had an abortion and or multiple abortions. Someone else might have encouraged someone to have an abortion and are struggling with self-condemnation and guilt. Let me make three closing statements. Statement one, understand that the nature of God is to love us no matter what we have done. 
The nature and character of God is to love us no matter what we have done. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. Verse 11, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. Abortion isn't the unpardonable, unforgivable sin. And understand that no matter what we have done, our sin will never be greater than God's grace. It is God's nature to forgive. Statement two, God doesn't discriminate in his forgiveness from sin. 1 John 1 verse 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from, not some, not most, cleanses us from all sin. Catholicism divides sins into separate categories. Lesser sins are called venial sins and More serious sins, according to them, are called mortal sins. God doesn't do that. Sins can differ according to severity. Sins can differ according to consequences. But sin is sin. And God doesn't discriminate in forgiving us from sins. Understand that abortion is just as forgivable as as is any other sin. And statement three... God forgets forgiven sins, and we ought to forget them too. God forgets forgiven sins, and we ought to forget them too. Hebrews 10, verse 17, God said this about those that have received salvation, and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. To forget those sins that Christ has forgiven us as a Christian doesn't mean we are to have sudden and complete amnesia and utterly eradicate the memories of those sins from our conscious minds. Understand that apart from some serious medication, that isn't possible. In this case, please don't miss this. In this case, to forget means to remember. To forget means to remember. To forget those sins that Christ has forgiven means that when a forgiven sin does come to mind, we are to remember that Christ has forgiven that sin. Guilt from an abortion that has been forgiven is a pseudo-guilt, a fraudulent, false form of guilt. And that guilt should be rejected just as much as that abortion itself should be rejected. God forgives sins. God forgets sins, and we need to forget forgiven sins ourselves. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you. That's a lot of stuff today. I know. I just hope it made sense. I hope we are convinced that human life begins at the moment of conception, and I pray that each of us will have a determination never, not only to not have an abortion ourselves, if we're still of that age, but to never encourage someone to have an abortion and that we will be pro-life in the womb and after the womb. I just thank you for your goodness and I thank you most of all for your grace and for your forgiveness because we all need that forgiveness. Whether we've had an abortion or not is irrelevant. We have all sinned and we're so grateful that your grace covers our sins. Thank you. And I ask it in the name of your mighty son, Jesus. Amen.